The oil company Shell has been practicing scenario planning for 50 years, imagining different ways the future will roll out and building an organization with the resilience and adaptability to be ready, or at least ready-ish, for these new worlds. Shell ran their very first scenario planning session in 1971, and they've been sharing some of their insights since then. In their new Lens report from 2013, they talk about three different central paradoxes to our world. The prosperity paradox, the leadership paradox, and the connectivity paradox. Let me just focus on one for now, the connectivity paradox. And the connectivity paradox is this. On the one hand, we've never been more connected, and that has unleashed in an extraordinary way the ability to connect. YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, articles, self-published books, yep, even podcasts, they are everywhere, and that's just the tip of the surface. But that same connectivity has destroyed the value of IP. It's easy to be a creative. It's hard to fund a life as a creative. The long tail is very, very, very long indeed these days. So how do you find a way to live a life as someone who creates? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. I first came across Jessica Abel's work when I discovered her book, Out on the Wire. It's really a must read for anyone interested in the art of storytelling, particularly in the world of podcasting. It's also a graphic novel. Now, I dabble in graphic novels, or sometimes they're called comics. I've just finished Why? The Last Man, and if you're looking for a recommendation that's about to become a TV series, that's a pretty good read. And so, of course, I have some idea of what it takes to write a book, because I've written some of those myself. And, you know, if you haven't heard me complain about it, it is endless working and reworking of the text. I don't really know what it takes to create a full-length graphic novel, but Jessica does. You know, we're not talking like, oh yeah, I had a couple of weeks of crazy hours. It was literally 10 months with me working flat out every day, Matt helping me with backgrounds, interns helping me put stuff together. Because um, the thing about comics is that once, you know, I, I spent a year researching the book, creating the structure, redoing the, you know, learning from the material to create the book um, and writing it for another year. So pulling the structure apart, doing it over, whatever. So two years of development. And then I have essentially a complete book, except I still have to draw it. So in other words, it's just like writing a book but then also drawing a book, twice the work at least, for something that gets consumed maybe five times as quick. Wow, that is a lot. And you know what? Creating the book is in some ways the easy part because at least that's a known unknown. It's a mess, but it's your mess. You've set the parameters. You're accountable for its progress and success. But there's so much more to life than that. If I'm going to be able to pay for my family's life, I have to be pitching a new book now. While I am working 10 hours a day at the drawing table, um, I should be coming up with a new concept, putting together a book proposal, getting it to my edit, my agent, you know, getting it, you know, trying to figure out what's next. And I just was, I just thought I can't, this feeling of like, I can't ever get off this 
uh, hamster wheel of creation, um, just like churning out stuff. The hamster wheel, chasing hard just to try and catch up to being slightly less behind. And that's the perfect segue for Jessica's book. I chose How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi. Right. It is, um, it's, it's a memoir. It's a, it's a series of essays, many of which have been published elsewhere mm. and then reworked to kind of fit together and, and so on. Um, but the, basically cover his life becoming a, becoming an author. Right. You know, it, it covers his high school years and thinking about his awakening as a writer at that point. And it's not always just focusing on writing. It's also focusing on other parts of his life. I mean, he's, um, he's Asian American, he's, um, he's gay and like all, he was a, a very in, involved in, um, ACT UP and, you right. know, AIDS, um, uh, activism. activism. Yeah. Yeah. And so all oh, that's in there as well. So um, knowing, knowing all that, how did you come to pick two pages? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot to choose from. It took a while. It was hard, <laughs> but I mean, we're going to talk about why I picked this yeah. after I read it, but, um, yeah, well, I'll tell you why I picked this book. Cause you know, right. All right. Well, let's hear, the, let's hear these two pages, Jessica. I'm excited to, to, to listen to them. When I was a student of writing in college, I was guilty of believing that I would have the sort of life of an author that proceeded along lines that kept me well within the limits of the middle class. It is the American art trap. Make art, but be a good member of your social class. A friend of mine even has a belief that I think is worth testing that the primary deciding factor of whether a writer becomes a writer is their relationship to being middle class. If they are working class or upper class or even an aristocrat, they are at least comfortable betraying that class in order to write. Put another way, will you be able to write and also eat or even eat well? Will you have to work another job? Will you be able to pay for healthcare, a house, dental work, retirement? These fantasies frayed and fell apart fast enough as the two places I chose to focus my career, writing and teaching, have both met with extraordinary income destruction in the last two decades. I learned quickly that if you stop writing, nothing happens. But I also learned that I had nowhere else to go. I mastered my diligence in the face of that, but I'm still not free of the demon that can stop me in my tracks and make me doubt my sense of my own worth and power. And there isn't just a single demon, nor are they only personal ones at that. You're up against what people will always call the ways of the world and the ways of this country, which does not kill artists so much as it kills the rationale for art, in part by insisting that the artist must be a successful member of the middle class, if not a celebrity, to be a successful artist. And that to do otherwise is to fail art, the country, and yourself. Should you decide that writing is your way to serve your country or to defend it, you're almost always writing about the country it could become. Mm. There's a lot there about what it means to commit to a life of being a creative. Um, what, what, what rings true for you in all of this, Jessica? Well, I mean, this relates directly to what we were just talking about. Yeah. That yeah. the, this is, I, I recognized throughout this book in various points, this resonance of this, this battle between art and wanting to make art, wanting to, to make creative work for its own sake mm. and feeling like it's got to pay its way. You know, I right. have to be able to make this be the primary way I make my money. Yeah. Um, 
partly just for time reasons, because, you know, um, money and gives you time to yeah. do the thing. And I mean, I could have picked all kinds of parts in different places in this book, but a lot of times the, the entire essay is about the thing that I <laughs> right, wanted to talk right. about. And there was no two page section that I could right. boil down. This was a nice little short section. This is actually in the middle of a, um, the very, I think it's the last, maybe the last essay in the book, um, which is about um, the last, the, the, the 2016 election, the election yes. and how that affected his thinking about his life and writing and, and his relationship with the students and all kinds of other things. So um, that's you, the, the context of this particular piece. Have you had to sacrifice the joy of creating by turning it into a career? I think there's an element of that. I mean, it becomes a, it, it's, it's not a total sacrifice of all joy in it. I mean, mm. there are definitely things that I really enjoyed and were stimulated by throughout my career, you know, when I was working actively as a cartoonist, but, um, the economic imperatives around being an author mm. are just so difficult to handle. And they're so, um, destructive really of your ability to create work for its own sake or yeah. pursue an idea that may be a really great idea, but isn't, doesn't uh, necessarily fit the mold of how, what you can sell and, and what people right. are going to be interested in and those kinds of things. And um, sometimes it's fine to work on those things kind of to balance those things with something else that's going to support your life. And I think that's, actually a really honorable way to do this is to, right. to find a way to balance those things. For cartoonists, it's a little extra difficult because of the amount of time, non-fungible time that needs to go into creating right. the actual thing. But for authors too, you know, for, for prose authors as well, it's, you know, it can be really difficult to find enough space for making the thing. Yeah. But yeah, I do think it takes, I mean, it's people in my, uh, course in, in the creative focus workshop in the autonomous creative collective mm. and especially in authentic visibility, which is the sort of marketing visibility course that I teach all of them. They will, it's very frequent to have people say something like this is some, this is an idea that I have. So what, what's next? Should I put it on Etsy? You know, right. <laughs> like, should I do, should I create a store? Should I make mm. a website for this? And um, by the time they're in authentic visibility, the answer is yes, because that's what you're there for, right? But when you're in the creative focus workshop, the answer is, I don't know, maybe. Like, right. do, you, do you need to, how much visibility do you need around this? How much community right. do you need to build? What kind of relationships do you want to build around this work? Right. How much money do you need to make from it? And being really, really clear about your goals for the work. Right. What does success in the look world. like for you? Yeah. What does success look like for you and why? Yeah. Um, it's really, really essential because if you don't, and I think that's the biggest thing that happened with me is there was mm. a misalignment between what my goals were, what success looked like, right. because it included both, you know, great reviews and people loving the book and, right. you know, having a cultural influence and also supporting my family. A worked, B did not work as <laughs> right. well as I expected. And I right. couldn't ever figure out why. Like I had to get into the 
you know, I had to figure out what was that sort of free fall airy space between mm. those two things and why did they not connect to each other? And that took a really long time. How, how do you find that line between wanting the external validation, you know, awards and reviews and things where you're like, and invitations to conferences and the like, and um, that kind of internal motivation. I'm wondering how you've navigated that because, I, you know, I feel that pull that way, this way and that way myself. I think that probably the external validation, not money, but having people see the work and respond to it was why I became a cartoonist, basically. Right. Because I got really good feedback very early on, and it kept me going. It kept yeah. me doing the thing. Even though when I started, I was doing mini comics, um, which is just like, you know, self-published, photocopied. I just, you know, there was, I could pay for postage with what I, <laughs> right. you know, because it would send them through the mail. And yeah. it, there was no um, financial benefit to doing this. But there was a, a really large social benefit to it. So I got reviews and I got people talking about it. I also had people from across the country and around the world, like writing me letters saying, send me this book. I've heard about it. It's great. Or saying like, send me the next one. Right. I love what right. you did, you know, and fan mail and all this stuff. So that kind of validation kept me doing it at a time when I was really bad at self-regulation <laughs> right. and pro productivity, you know, getting anything done. I was really, really bad at it, honestly. People look at me now and they're like, that's not possible. And I'm like, no, you <laughs> Trust can me. understand. Like, <laughs> I've I come took, a long way, baby. <laughs> I know. I took a year to finish a 20-page mini comic. Right. Of which only like whatever, <laughs> 12 pages were comics. I mean, you know, right. it's not uh I was not a model of of, of uh you know production. Ruthless efficiency, like yeah. Exactly. Not <laughs> at all. But it kept me on those kinds of things kept me on track. Yeah. And I could see that. I was, you know, heading towards something. I had this kind of um, crisis moment after I'd done four mini comics, and I realized that the comic I had just done, or done three of them, I guess, was not up to. It wasn't up to standard. I had yeah. just kind of like crapped it out, even though it took me a year. And um, I felt like, what am I going to really do this or not? Like, what's happening here? And then I really put focus into the next thing that I did. And I submitted it for a grant, the Zarek grant, which is a, at the time was a very important grant for self-publishing um, that a lot of my colleagues of my sort of age cohort and afterwards, you know, this was like the pivotal moment is like when they got the Zarek grant, that's when they started doing whatever. And in fact, that's what happened with me. Right. And it's, it's like, again, there's like this next little piece that kind of kept me in the game uh, a little bit longer. It's, it's an interesting phrase you used. I really put focus into it. What have you learned about what focus is? Well, in that case, and this is, we're talking mid nineties now. Um, I, I, I didn't necessarily have a philosophy around what comics were or should be or anything like, you know, I didn't necessarily have a big, I didn't know how to construct stories. It's one of the mm. reasons I, eventually ended up doing out on the wire is feeling like I need to figure out some, what, what are the principles that go into this, right. you know, what are the deeper rhythms behind stories? Exactly. Yeah. So I didn't, so that was always a struggle to figure out how to put the story together, how to make, you know, how to have, make it have any kind of forward momentum at all. I'm by the way, English major, <laughs> University of Chicago, 
And I still didn't know. Nobody (laughs) ever taught me this. What I was thinking is I need to not, you know, I can't do a kind of okay job on, at Mm. that point on drawing was what I was really focusing on. I can't just be okay at this. I have to actually give it my all. I have to, um, the stuff that's really hard, like backgrounds and, you know, doing complex sort of like establishing shots or stuff like that. I have to actually do that. (laughs) I have to spend the time necessary to do it right. Um, Or I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get up a level, you know, I'm just going to stay right. in this kind of, you know, good this, for a beginner. This is this next step towards mastery. Yeah. Um, and pursuing mastery in that way. And I've had a number of different times that I've done that in different areas. And in, and I can also see where I've stopped doing it in some areas and kind of stagnated, you know, um, withdrawing and sort of like stop and start. And then with writing it stop and, you know, I can see different ways in which I kind of went through that, but mm. I would identify a place where I'm like, I have to solve this problem right? and um, put a ton of effort into figuring out what was in it and what I cared about in it and, and what did I want to learn and, and those kinds of things. So when you are teaching your students about focus, about committing to a singular goal and the important work, what, what surprises them in what you teach about what's required for this degree of focus? Well, I think the thing that surprises them and me, frankly, over and over again about learning creative focus and really the creative focus workshop is a program that is about executive function. Mm. It's about decision-making and being in control of your trajectory, being able to direct yourself. Um, which can turn into productivity, but is that's not the, you know, that's not the focus of it. Yeah. So the number one thing that I think is surprising everybody is how much no is required right. in order to have a yes. Oh, I love that you said that. It's so true. It's so true, right? Yeah. And you think like people come to me saying, um, I don't know what to focus on. You know, I have all these different ideas. You know, I, how do I say yes to something? I'm like, no, no, no. You said yes to everything. That's mm. not the problem. The problem is no. and And it's no for it's really hard to say no to other people and that's the first layer where people mm. resist and have a hard time because they've always you know done all the kitchen cleanup and need to ask their spouse to do it or yeah. whatever you know there's those kinds of no's that are that are emotional and difficult for people um but the the hardest one is no to yourself right you know you have to say no to your own ideas and your own um, <laughs> you have to learn like to, that, that saying no is saying yes, it's the same thing. You can't, right. you know, just in a coaching call last week with a group and, um, a woman was there and she has two ideas that she is super committed to. And they sound like great ideas, frankly, they sound amazing. Um, That's not and the point. <laughs> she, right. Well, and she said that she's been talking to She's been toggling between the two. Which one does she want to do? And they're related, you know, um, thematically, but mm. not in their execution. One is an offer that's – they're both offers, as it turns out. That's not always the case. But one is an offer for clients and one is an offer for um, individuals. Right. Um, like a course. And uh, in related areas, but, you know, consulting versus whatever. Yeah. And um, – she said, I've been talking to people in my life, you know, friends, whatever. And they all think, yes, you should do both of these things. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think? Any red flags? And I'm like, 
yes. Big <laughs> one, <red> big one. <laughs> yeah. one big one. One big one. That you just can't develop both of those audiences at the same time. You can't right. put effort into those things and you're going to hobble both of them. Okay, but how do you how do you get the courage to kill off or at least to shelve these ideas? Because this woman is not atypical in that she's down to just two ideas, but they're both really good ideas. What what have you learned, Jessica, about how how to make that call, how to to plunge in and go, I'm making a strong yes. And that means I have to have a couple of strong no's to really give my yes outline and shape and commitment. I mean, you have to have hundreds of no's. Let's not underplay this. Like right. one yes means all the no's. <laughs> right. Um, how do I do that? Well, I am still learning, still trying <laughs> to figure this out. But um, right. the main thing is pulling back to 10,000 feet and figuring out what do you really want? So defining right. success for yourself, mm. defining um, where and thinking about where you want to be in the future. What work do you want to be doing in the future? What mm. Who do you want to be working with? Who do you want to be looking at your work and paying attention to your work? So we do a thing called Vision Quest in right. Creative Focus Workshop. We do visioning also in Authentic Visibility. So there's this kind of, that's the initial piece. And people get really like about that because they don't want to kind of it feels too big and too scary. And honestly, I don't have a five-year plan. I don't right. have a five-year vision. And 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 I just said something that was going to be confusing. So I make a clear distinction between a vision and a plan. Right. So a vision is a, a North Star, a thing to head towards that can help you make these kinds of decisions and figure out whether they mm. are aligned with this future thing or not. And it changes all the time. It should right. change because as soon as you take action, you have more information about whether that is actually something you want or not. So if you feel like tied to this future vision and you're not changing it, you're probably ignoring Data. information that you yeah. have right now. Can, can you um, give me an example of what a vision sounds like? Well, I think what I do is have, have people write a, a, a bio for themselves, like a one line, right. you know, tagline in five years right so something like um you know tanya jones is a uh, an award-winning children's book author right who is currently on tour for her latest you know this book right whatever Je it is jessica abel is the catalyst of a hundred thousand artists and creatives in the world right exactly that kind of thing yeah nice and um the more granular it is, the more helpful it is. So just mm. like the catalyst of a bunch of author, you know, authors and artists is like, ah, what am I catalyzing? Yeah. You know, if I can right, be right. more specific about it, then I can actually make decisions about like, okay, is the project I'm working on right now going to catalyze people? Is it the first step on going towards this end result? Right, right. Um, our uh, mission at um, Autonomous Creative, which is my company, is lead the, the conversation about creative autonomy. Mm. So- that means I want people to be thinking about this and talking about this. I want people to be thinking about this kind of decision-making that needs to happen and this kind of the sense that creative people, there's so much learned helplessness. There's so much right. um, disempowerment handed to us as creative people as we grow mm. up, like, you know, the starving artist myth and the, the writer in the garret and all that other stuff. But also what goes along with that is like, if you're not, committed to your work to the exclusion of basically any other thinking about, you know, how this fits into your life or whatever, you're not really the real thing. 
you know, yeah. you're not really an artist if that's the case. Yeah. Um, same thing with entrepreneurs, you know, if you're not grinding every day, you yeah. know, it's not real. Uh, and those are just really destructive myths. And so getting people to question those kinds of things and think about what does it mean to be autonomous? What does it mean to be making your own decisions for yourself right. and self-directing in your life? That's what we want to be doing. And so everything I'm doing now is like, how do I get people to talk about that more? How do I get people to be thinking about that more? How can I get them to actu activate that in their lives? And so that is a filter for all the projects that I do yeah, yeah. and all the things that I spend time on in my company. That's a powerful word, autonomous, you know, the autonomous creative. Can you tell me a bit more about what you think a strong autonomy looks like and feels like? I think the most important thing to start with is that autonomy doesn't mean alone. Mm. So we are the autonomous creative collective. That is our like <laughs> our membership. And it's it's a collective of people who who are able to make autonomous decisions mm. for themselves and and you know, but also know sometimes that means leaning on people. Sometimes that means working together on things. Yeah. So autonomy is um as somebody who grew up <laughs> very much following my own path, uh super DIY everything, you know, DIY comics, this was in a rock band, you know, there's like, just, we didn't know how to play anything. And I was inviting people over to jam with us, like, you know, <laughs> just, right. just do it, just do the thing. Like, that's my attitude about stuff. And as a, as a professional, I'm, I realized in the last few years, I'm a little bit kind of raised by wolves. Like, I don't have these, I didn't come up through the corporate world. Like, yeah. I don't understand any of that stuff. <laughs> um, right. And it's actually been a, a major work of translation to understand sort of business building concepts and mm. how do I need and how do I interpret them for me and for my kind of people. Right. Um, so you, but you don't have to come to autonomy from that, but that's where my brain comes from. That's where I come from right. is this idea of like first principles, like the more I can learn to go back to first principles on storytelling, for example, mm -hmm. like what are the basic underpinnings of creating a compelling story at right. least in, i mean obviously there's many different ways to do it and i talk about like a range of the spectrum not everything right but in that range of spectrum like wh what are the things you can do to make this work better um so you know a book like out on the wire is really just this investigative work of like finding out what what are those secrets what are those things that mm. are going to make this function i with my husband, Matt, Matt and I, um, we wrote two textbooks about making comics. So also there, it's like, what are the things you need to, what are the elements you need in order mm. to be able to build comics from the ground up? Um, and then there's these, the, the creative focus, the creative focus workshop principles, whole new set of things that I had, some of them I'd already been, you know, I'd learned to be effectively productive over the years. And that's what I started out teaching but really learned from my students over right. time to expand the definition of what we were trying to do into this much more building sustainable, resilient, effective, creative life. Yeah. Um, and that takes going back to these first principles, like this idea of, I teach this idea of the one goal. It's not yeah. really one goal. It's kind of one project at a time. Mm. That's what we're talking about in terms of saying yes and saying no. Yeah. There's a whole process around that. That's a that's a principle that applies all over the place. And so, yeah. again, so to be autonomous, you have to be willing to give up received <laughs> wisdom right. 
and make these decisions for yourself. Is there, is there any risk that autonomy becomes a burden of, I need to know all the first principles of everything myself? I mean, this is, I ask for me, because there's this tension between, um, look, I'm, I want to, I want to have, I want to be the author of my life and shape it and frame it in the way that I want to do it. And, um, but the intention to that is I want to hire other people to do a whole bunch of stuff and, and have expertise, but am I then engaging in magical thinking going, Hey, I'm, I hate this stuff. Just you do it for me and I'll pretend it doesn't have to happen. How do you navigate that trickiness, Jessica? Well, I think it's, you're right. It's a very real tension. Um, so one thing I would say is beyond a certain level of, you know, the basic things we teach in the creative focus workshop of figuring out what your vision is and the direction. And then also the, um, building, you know, figuring out your one yeah. project, your one goal, um, and, and a little bit of project planning outside of that. I feel like when you come to something that you need to make a decision about, it's really important to treat this opportunistically and not try to figure out everything in your life before you start. I'm right. a huge advocate of imperfect action. One yeah, of the yeah. things I say all nice. the time is that you can act your, your way into a new way of thinking, but you can't think your way into a new way of acting. You just have mm. to do stuff. This is what I was saying about vision too. Like you say, here's my vision. And then you start working on it and you're like, oh, no, that's not my vision at all. Right. No, 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 no. So if you try to get it all right, then it's just you're falling into perfectionism again. Mm. And um, you have to be willing to, and 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 I, I, I talk about this kind of scientific thinking yes. or semi-scientific thinking where basically you're taking data that's coming into you and you're making decisions based on what happens. And so that looking at things somewhat opportunistically in the sense that when it comes to you, that's when you make the decision or when you see this issue, that's when you figure mm. it out instead of trying to like retrofit everything in your life all at right. once. Right. And that's what I would say about it. Um, in terms of hiring people, again, I, being autonomous doesn't mean not alone. working with people. Yeah. It doesn't right. mean alone. Um, like in my company, the, the people who work with me, I want them to be autonomous within the company. Yes. I want them to be empowered to make decisions based on, you know, our collective this, goals this and their individual responsibility. goals. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can embody, um, you can embody autonomy and still, and I think we have a really wonderful company culture. It's, you know, just a few of us, but like we really care about each other and work together really well because we're all respecting each other's autonomy. Yeah. We're not right. kind of trying to maintain some kind of hierarchical, you know, right. um, obviously there's some kind of hierarchy because I know more about what's going on than anybody else does. But other than that, yeah. you know, as much as I can, I just want to give people areas of responsibility and, and trust them. Jessica, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been really wide ranging. Um, a question I love to finish with is this, what needs to be said between you and I that hasn't yet been said in this conversation? I don't know. That's a rough one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think we covered a lot of stuff there. You did. You did. If there's anything that's on your mind that you're like, I wish you'd asked me about this or damn it, I was hoping we'd go down this path. You know, you can put that on the table. Or you could just go, look, my work here is done. I've got other things to do. I'm out of here, Michael. I don't know if there's anything that we need to say beyond what we said. I feel like um, I wish I could talk more about Alexander Chi because he's amazing and everybody should read his stuff. I yeah. also struggled to pick a book. I'm sure a lot of people do. 
And there are all kinds of other books that I could have read from. <laughs> yeah. That would be, they'd just be a completely different conversation. You know, what the, one of the ones that came to mind immediately was um, Under the Volcano um, right. by Malcolm Lowry, which is yeah, one of my yeah. favorite books. And I thought, oh, it'll be an opportunity to reread it. And, and, and I'm like, what am I going to talk about in relation to Under the Volcano, which is about like a drunken consul in Mexico? <laughs> That's you know, right. I lived That's in Mexico, right. but that would be like a whole other, I don't know. So yeah. is there anything we need to talk about? No. Is there yeah. anything we could talk about? Oh. <laughs> Endlessly. Yes. There might be some people out there who've managed to transcend the petty metrics the rest of humanity used to measure progress and success. I'm not one of those people. I mean, I know I've both got internal motivations and external motivations. I mean, for instance, with this podcast, I've got some goals around the number of people who listen to it. It's, it's not enough for me just to have fantastic people for my own sake. I really want an audience. I want reach. I want to make a difference. But I don't want a big audience at any cost. I also want to create something that's special, something that's distinctively Michael. External goals, internal goals. What I'm taking from this conversation with Jessica is how these goals change, how they emerge, how they're fluid. And I think the trick is to notice. I mean, I've got two questions I try to ask myself regularly to reset where I am and what I care about. What's success? And relatedly, how much is enough? Some days, these questions I can answer. Some days, I can't, or at least I struggle. They're hard questions. They're big questions. What's gone from feeling like enough sometimes changes and dissolves, and now I ask myself, what am I doing here? But until you get clear on the answers to these questions, you'll struggle to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Jessica talks about this. Saying no to other people, well, that's hard for sure. But harder still is saying no to yourself, no to the obligations that you still carry, even though they may no longer be yours. No to a limited sense of who you are and what's possible when your potential and your capacity has expanded. No to the belief that you're not allowed to be ambitious for yourself or for the world. If you're looking for other conversations in the same vein as this one, I'd recommend two. First, the episode called How to Get to Grips with Reality with Oliver Berkman. I can also recommend his new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And another episode that's got a different vibe to it, a different energy, but touches on similar issues is the one with David Noor entitled The Lords of Strategy. For more information about Jessica and her books and her courses, jessicaable.com. She's also on Instagram at VisibleWoman. And of course, if you're buying her books and they're available everywhere you'd buy books, I'd encourage you to buy local rather than on Amazon if you can. Thanks for your support of this podcast. The three key ways to support it. One, word of mouth. If you can pass on a recommendation of an episode to somebody in your life, that's great for them, great for me, and possibly great for you as well. Secondly, giving a review or a thumbs up or some stars on your podcast app. That's always exciting for me to see. And finally, joining us and being a member at the Duke Humphreys, the free membership site that's connected to this podcast. You'll find more information about that and the access to transcripts and unreleased episodes and the like at mbs.works and just find the podcast page there. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. You're awesome and you're doing great.